Scripture reading this morning will be from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 16. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city. You will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord took him. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, He has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, answered, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles, and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. This is God's word. You may be seated. It's not the ending of a passage that you would normally uh, expect. Suffering for my name. How much he will suffer for my name. We're going to think about that and the theme of suffering as it uh, pertains to the gospel and uh, evangelism and outreach and the sharing and the expansion of, of the church in the first century. But first, let's bow our heads one more time and join our hearts as we pray. Father, we're grateful for life and the life that is abundant and filled with joy and the life, Father, that, that you are changing into uh, allowing us to to become more like Christ in all that we do, whether it be in love or self-control or in the ways that we exhibit gentleness and kindness and the like. We're grateful for this life, Father, and we want to grow more into it. And to be like that light set on a hill, we want to, to be like salt in this community in the sense that we bring flavor and we bring, um, we bring goodness to it. And so as we think about the obstacles to bringing this kind of love and this kind of truth and grace into the world around us, we pray that you will give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it. So bless us this way, Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So another uh, interesting passage like the one that, that David just read for us, but this time it happens toward the end of Jesus' life. In fact, it's one of the last teachings that Jesus is going to give his disciples. And he says in John chapter 16, he says, I have told you these things so that in me you will have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. If you've got a, your Bible open or have jotted that verse down, you might want to circle the words peace and trouble. They, both of those words are in the extreme opposite ends, poles from each other, but they're in the same verse because in some ways they're very much connected. You see, disciples throughout all of history, disciples like you and me in this room right now, have always had to learn how to live between the tension that is found in two different cultures in which we exist. The first culture is the one where uh, we, we might call it the kingdom culture. It's where we understand that we live in a fallen world. That is, a world that does not recognize that God is the creator and by and large rejects that. And because we live in this fallen world that does not recognize that God is its creator, this, 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 um, this world will create a variety and, and sometimes a continual experience of trouble. The, the second culture would be what, what we might call a secular culture. The larger secular culture expends a lot of energy, a lot of resources to convince everybody that they're okay and also to get rid of all of the trouble that there is in the world because the belief is this world is all that there is. And if there is nothing beyond this. There is nothing outside of this. This is the only thing that exists, this physical, material world. Then part of our duty as proper human beings and responsible adults is to try to get rid of all of the suffering. So as disciples of Jesus, we live continually in the tension between those two cultures. I've told you this story before, but a number of years ago, uh, uh, and, and, and it happens to this day, from time to time, I'm called upon to, uh, to lead a prayer at some, some government agency or meeting here in the city. A couple of years ago, a councilman invited me to lead the opening prayer at a, at a Thursday council meeting. And when you get there, you get there kind of early, and they kind of go through a handling process of what it means to, 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 to go in with the Pledge of Allegiance and the prayer and these kinds of things. And it finally came my time to, to lead the prayer. And as I typically do when asked to lead these prayers at the council meetings in that chamber, I pray you know, that God will bless our civic leaders with wisdom and discernment to know how to make wise decisions, decisions that will bless the community, and that our community will become one where there's harmony and peace and people learn to live with each other and it's not a mean place and so on and so forth. And I ended the prayer with the words, as we always end them, in the name of Jesus I pray, amen. That was a Thursday. Sunday morning, the following Sunday morning, get to the office here to get ready for the worship assemblies of the day, and I open up my Outlook, and there's an email in which the councilman and myself are addressed in the, the memo line from somebody I didn't recognize, and uh, I thought, ah, oh, well, you know, somebody's probably wanting to thank me for leading a prayer for peace in the city and all these kinds of things. Wrong. It was, a, it was a note from a fellow that had been there during the prayer and, and during the early part of the, the chamber meeting, the council meeting, and had become offended that I had prayed in the name of Jesus. And, and being an atheist, he felt excluded. In fact, uh, 
by the language of the email, thought that there was sort of a personal attack on him. And then the letter uh, stated these words, if um, Pastor Absher and councilman at that time do not publicly apologize in the council for the exclusionary prayer that he prayed and so on and so forth, I will launch a lawsuit against the city and against the pastor. And I said, man, what a way to start a Sunday. <laughs> and, uh, you, you know, it, uh, you know, you never, you never like those kinds of, of, of moments in life, but you do sort of get used to them because of the things that Jesus has said about the world in which we live. And that's not uh, a recent development. I mean, all you have to do is read the book of Acts, and you begin to realize that this kind of pushback and this kind of trouble for the last 2,000 years has been a norm. I mean, think about Acts chapter 4. Peter and John are put in jail for healing a man who's been lame for 40 years. In Acts chapter 5, the high priest and all of his associates, they put the apostles in prison. The very next two chapters, Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7, here's this fellow by the name of Stephen who's taking care of widows. He is seized by, by the people in opposition to the gospel, and after they hear him explain what he believes the gospel is all about, they take him outside of the walls of Jerusalem, probably through the Stephen gate or the Lion's gate, and they stone him to death. In Acts chapter 8, there's this great persecution that breaks out against the church. In Acts chapter 9, it begins, the very first verse, and Saul was breathing murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And then he's converted. And at the end of Acts chapter 9, while he's in Damascus, there are these guys that are going to attempt to assassinate Saul after he has been converted. In Acts chapter 12, one of Jesus' best friends and one of the lead apostles in Jerusalem, a fellow by the name of James, whose brother is John, he is beheaded because that was pleasing to everybody. Herod decides he's going to get the big fish, the guy by the name of Peter, and he throws him into jail in Acts chapter 12. Paul and Barnabas have insults that are heaped on them in Pisidian Antioch in Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 14, you think the insults are bad, wait till they grab you and they drag you out of the city, outside the city of Lystra, and they stone you and, and leave you for dead. And then in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are in prison in Philippi. Acts chapter 17, in Thessalonica, there's a riot. In Acts chapter 23, there are 40 guys... There are 40 men who decide, we hate Paul. Saul, is, his name's been changed to Paul now. We hate Paul and his message so much, we vow not to eat until we have assassinated him. And then following that, as you get to chapter 28, between chapter 23 and chapter 28, you have more trials, you have more arrests, you have more trouble. And once you get past Acts, historically, there's, there's martyrdom. As, as people are burned alive at the stake because of their faith, they, they die cruel deaths in the arena at the hands of, of, of men and of wild animals. There's this cruel persecution that breaks out on the church and lasts at times getting very, 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 uh, you know, pressuring the church greatly. And other times it would die down a little bit. But that was the historical norm for about 300 years until the time of Constantine. And yet, every time you turn around, there's this trouble, and yet the mission of God to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth did not stop. 
trouble did not stop the church. The fact that I might be rejected by saying something that might be outside of my comfort zone did not stop the church from sharing their faith and speaking about the resurrection. And there comes a point where the city leaders there in Thessalonica go, oh my goodness, the guys that have turned the world upside down have come here. How did the early church overcome the appalling and horrific and extremely brutal persecution that it faced? Throughout Acts, you see three convictions. The first is, they were convinced of the Lord's presence and power. They were convinced of the Lord's presence and power. From the very beginning of Acts, there is this conviction. And we've already talked about this in part when we talked about the prayer life of the early church. They are continually in prayer. And their prayer is so continually deepening in its faith that at one point in Acts chapter 4, they are praying not for all of the good stuff that might happen. They're just praying for boldness to overcome the fear of being persecuted in order to be able to talk about the resurrection. And what happened at the end of that prayer? The walls of that place shook. Now, where did that conviction that the Lord is always with them come from? How did they develop that? Well, you know, there's really two answers to that question. The first answer is this. The Lord told them. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, what did he say? He's getting ready to leave the mission of the church in their hands. Some of them are doubting. They worship him, but some are doubting. And he, before he ascends into heaven, he gives them these instructions. Go into all of the world, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Also teach them to obey everything. And then the very last thing he says to them, know this, I am what? With you. I am with you. And you know, here's the funny thing about those disciples. They, they saw him... Uh, live in all kinds of different circumstances. They saw the miracles that he performed. They heard his teaching. They saw the way that he interacted with people. And you know what they came to the conclusion of? They came to the conclusion that he was not a liar. That when he told them that you're going to go into this entire big world and you're going to make disciples in my image by baptizing and teaching, but you're not doing it alone. I'm going to be there with you. Guess what? They decided he was telling the truth, and they believed it. The second answer to the question, where did they get this conviction about the Lord's presence and power, is that he was continually demonstrating his presence over and over and over and over. We've already talked about the walls being shaken when they prayed the boldness to speak the words of the gospel in Acts 4. Go to the very next chapter. The apostles are in prison for preaching Jesus. And what happens? An angel of the Lord sets them free. And then over in Acts chapter 9, and we don't have a, uh, you know, really the time to do an exhaustive list, but think about Acts chapter 9. Here is the biggest antagonist and persecutor of the church. Uh, Luke describes him this way. He is breathing murderous threats against the church. Now, when you are breathing in and out, <laughs> murder, you are a guy to be reckoned with and a, and a cat to be considered. And yet, 
As he's on the road to Damascus from Jerusalem, he is knocked off of his feet. He is made blind. And in the text that, that David read for us a minute ago, he comes to faith and he believes that Jesus is Lord and dedicates his life. In Acts chapter 12, you have this angel that frees Peter from, from prison as he's awaiting to be executed the next day. In Acts chapter 16, you know, uh, Paul and Silas are in Philippi and they're in prison and they're chained and they're in the dark and what are they doing? They're singing and worshiping God and then there's an earthquake that springs them from jail. In that same chapter, there's this, this dream where there's the instruction to Paul to go to Macedonia. And then in Acts chapter 23, the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces. I mean, have you ever spoken the truth of the gospel in such a way that people were going to tear you to pieces? And it's not because Paul did not know how to say it in truth and in love and in love and in truth. So this commander orders the troops to go down and to take him away, take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night... The Lord stood near Paul. Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Remember the 40 guys who are going to take a vow to not eat until they have killed Paul? Guess what? They starved to death. And it's because the Lord stood near to Paul and said, You know what? No harm is going to come to you. You're going to get to Rome. The Lord tells Paul that nothing is going to keep him out of Rome. You see, friends, a, a conviction of the early church was that God was present and working even when they couldn't see it. We only see a part of what's going on around us. But perhaps... Um, we need to consider not paying lip service to different scriptures that, that, that we quote from time to time. I mean, what do we say when we watch somebody baptized, sins forgiven, the, the relationship with God is healed? What do we say is happening in heaven? Angels are celebrating. Has anybody ever seen that? Do we have a conviction that although at times invisible that the Lord's presence and power is at work in our church. Knowing that there is more going on than what we see with our eyes is incredibly encouraging. And I'm not sure that you always get there right you know, at the very beginning of that journey, but, but think about Joseph in the Old Testament. Here's Joseph who, you know, truth be told, I had never been in a fight in my life, but if I was around Joseph, I might have been tempted. He's a bragger, and he's kind of prideful. He's just kind of a pain to be around. His brothers can't stand him. The family's dysfunctional, and they decide that they're going to kill this guy. I mean, I mean to know that in this, this collective society and culture that they live in, that's family-based, that the people that you have to depend on in the world are trying to kill you, that, that's, that's a pretty bad day. He's probably feeling a little blue about that. But they decide not to kill him. They put him down in a pit, and then they sell him off. And then there's the prison, and there's a, the, the injustice, and the false accusations, and, and being forgotten, and all of these kinds of things. But then the next thing you know, Joseph has, ridden, uh, has risen to the place where he's the right-hand man to Pharaoh in Egypt. And the next thing you know, he's saving Egypt from, from, from poverty and from starvation and the famine. 
and all of these kinds of things, and God has been with him all along. And then, lo and behold, after all of these years, those brothers show up. And they haven't seen him in a long time, so they don't recognize him right off the bat. Plus, he's dressed like an Egyptian. They don't have a clue. But he sees them. You know, for a certain kind of an individual, you would say, all right, I got them where I want them. But not Joseph. In the end of the story, he brings everybody to Egypt. And he says, now I see that all of this bad stuff, all of this stuff, the pushback, the rejection, the injustice, all of that has happened in order for this moment for God to save my family. You look at Paul, and you go to 2 Corinthians, and there's that list of things that he suffered for the sake of the gospel that's not even listed in the book of Acts. In short, Paul is a victim of incredible injustice. He faces human cruelty that is absolutely unfair. But have you ever noticed that Paul never acted like a victim? I'm sure it didn't feel good to be shipwrecked and all of that sort of thing. But there was such a strong conviction of the Lord's presence and power in his life that that he never acted like a victim. He understood that in a fallen world, trouble can seem intimidating. Trouble at times can seem like it's out of control, that it's random, that it's unstoppable at times. And that all the time it's painful. But he believed that Jesus had overcome all of that and that the gospel was changing everything. Not only were they convinced of the Lord's presence and power, but they were convinced about the gospel. One of the things that you notice when you read the book of Acts is just how many sermons there are. I mean, you can't you know, swing a, a, you know, a possum in the book of Acts and not hit a sermon. We, we will have a sermon on the messages of Acts in, in the coming weeks, but wherever the early disciples went, they spoke about the gospel. And one of my favorite verses in Acts, Acts chapter 8, verse 4, those who had been scattered, why were they scattered? Persecution that broke out because of the stoning and the death of Stephen. They, broke, they break out of Jerusalem, and those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. The number of days that have passed since the first day of creation until today is, is enormous. Whether you believe in a young earth or an old earth, the number of days that have passed since God spoke creation by a word into existence until this very day, what is today, February 5th? February 5th, 2017, an enormous amount of days. But here's the thing that we do know. We know the worst day, and we know the best day in the history of the earth's days. The worst day was when humans decided that they didn't trust God, they broke the commandment about a tree by eating of its fruit and ushering sin and death. That's Genesis chapter 3. And at that point, the world became a place of suffering and of decay and of the experience of death. Thorns and thistles, sweat, toil, fruitlessness, pain, all of that, Genesis 3. That's the worst day in the history of the world. You know what the best day was? The best day was when everything leading up to death and including death was defeated in the resurrection of Jesus. Salvation meant 
that the relationship between man and God had been healed. There were sins that were forgiven. There was a Holy Spirit that was inserted into the adopted children of God. And death had been defeated by Jesus going through death and being alive on the other side of death, which meant that he went right through the middle of it and got to that place of the resurrection where he would never die again. Death was in his personal past. You know, some years ago, Ellen and I are in graduate school together in Abilene. We were traveling on weekends looking for support for our mission work at that time to Africa. We left Abilene one Saturday morning. We were headed to a town on the coastal bend to try to raise some support. Stopped in one of those little small towns between Abilene and, and the coast. Went into the restaurant for breakfast. Obviously an incredibly popular spot because everybody in there was just chatting each other up. I mean, the place was loud. Everybody knew each other. When people would come in, they're waving at him and all these kinds of things. We watched a lot of folk come in. We watched a lot of folk get immediately served. And then I looked down at my watch, and we had been there about 20 minutes, and no one had even come and brought us a menu. Ellen said, I think this town should be renamed the Twilight Zone. <laughs> so we, we sat, and we watched, and we sat, very surreal, and at some point, I looked at Ellen, and I said, you know what? Let's go. And so we got up, we left, and we drove to the next town down the road and had breakfast there. And in essence, this is what happened. In essence, we hit the worst town in Texas for serving breakfast to out-of-towners and pushed through the middle of that town to the next town that was famous for its omelets. That's what the resurrection is. It's the worst thing that could ever happen to you being made nothing. And not because you hit it and bounce back, only to hit it again and again and again, but to hit it and to go through it and to put death and sin and disease and meanness behind you in your rearview mirror, never to see it again and nor to think about it ever again. And that's why the early church was just so enthusiastic about the gospel. It's because they were sharing words that they knew would change people's life. And not just, you know, uh, you know, help them lose weight or quit smoking or whatever it might be. It was going to change them from the inside out. Which meant that there was going to be joy and there was going to be love and kindness and peace. And all of these things in abundance. And that the world would change. And that's why they talked about the resurrection over and over again. Acts chapter 2, Peter speaking, seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. Acts chapter 4, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Acts chapter 4, verse 33, with great power the apostles continue, continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. In Acts chapter 17, verse 18, they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then in Acts chapter 24, beginning in verse 14, I admit, Paul says, that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that their will be a resurrection both of the righteous and the wicked they understood the resurrection in such a way that it made the trouble nothing and then the last conviction was a conviction of the meaning of suffering 
there's just a lot of experiences of suffering that are recorded in Acts. Innocent people being jailed. It happens to this day. Innocent people like Stephen being stoned to death or the Apostle James being beheaded. People trying to make the world a better place and blessing people with the gospel in the kingdom. Being shipwrecked. There are snake bites. False testimony. Public beatings with rods. Ridicule. And one of the oddest sounding scriptures to Western ears is this. Acts chapter 5. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. When we speak of the gospel, we usually emphasize that that Jesus died on the cross, which is true. We do say very little about his suffering, but Christ himself spoke a lot about it. In Mark chapter 8, the first time that he's trying to get his disciples prepared for what's happening with um, his cross when they get to Jerusalem, Mark records the words that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must, what church? Suffer. The most sensitive man who ever lived suffered many things, rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Luke chapter 24, sort of the same thing when he's talking to those fellows on the road to Emmaus. He said, did not the Messiah have to, what? Suffer these things. The church of Acts understood something about suffering that allowed them to face it and to experience it and to not lose faith or to lose their courage or boldness, but to even rejoice that they participated in a meaningful way the sufferings of Christ as it pertained to bringing the knowledge and the reality of the resurrection into the hearts of men and women. In Genesis 3, there's this, this oracle of God, and it's, it's not really prophecy or, or it's not commands. Basically what you have in that oracle is God's description of what life in the world is going to be like now that sin and death have entered into it. And and listen to the words that God uses as he speaks to the serpent and to the woman and to the man. He talks about a curse and dust and death and pain and banishment and nakedness and sweat and thorns. And he speaks about a tree, a singular tree in the middle of everything. What do those words in the middle of Genesis begin to foreshadow? Well, the curse reminds us that cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. And the dust and the death and being laid low, but not being abandoned to it. The pain, the beatings that were suffered, The banishment that he experienced when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The nakedness when they stripped off his clothing and all that sweat. We think of the sweat mingled with blood as he prayed for the cup to be taken from him in the garden. And the thorns and the thistles become a crown of thorns and that tree becomes 
a singular cross in the middle of everything. Jesus not only died on the tree, on that cross, but suffered the curse so that the words of Revelation chapter 22 would come true. No longer will there be any curse. Not only do we know why there is suffering in the world, we also know that one day there will be no such thing as suffering. But until that day, Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 still resonate. We have this treasure. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Christ so that the life of Jesus may be also revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now, and perhaps there are some ways that our church family might minister to you this morning through prayer or through counsel or encouragement. I, I, I don't know where you might be this morning in your relationship with God. I mean, can you fully say with all confidence that you belong to Him and that, that you are His and that whatever it is in all of the things that Jesus accomplishes on the cross and His burial, and His resurrection, and His ascension to heaven. That all of those benefits, and all of those blessings are your blessings, and those benefits are your benefits, and those promises are part of the way that you pattern your life from here on out. If not, then come down and talk to these shepherds about how that can become a reality in your life. And for the rest of us, it's time to praise God for the gospel, and to praise God for the resurrection, and to praise God for forgiveness, and to praise God for healing, and to praise God for the gospel, and to praise God for the words of life, and to praise God because God doesn't quit regardless of how stubborn we are, and we get that, and we love Him for it, and that love is what transforms us, and we will not stop in this city until every person knows about that resurrection. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and sing.